So we have a, a special guest. I, I guess you're not a guest anymore. You come here too often. Michael Kim Eubanks, for those of you who know him. Uh, Michael has been walking with us for years. He's been personal friends uh, with Suki and I for a number of years now. Uh, been on staff with InterVarsity for 13 Man, that's a commitment. So, and for those of you who don't know, uh, he and his wife Erina have just both uh, moved on to be pastors and staff at First Presbyterian Church in Fremont. Hayward. Oh, that's the wrong call, man. I told you it was Fremont. I'm just kidding. <laughs> in Hayward. Uh, without further ado, let me invite up Michael to come bring the word today. Is this thing on? Is this thing on? Oh, what a life. What a life, y'all. Just going to calm myself down by telling you what days look like for the Kim Eubanks tribe. Um, I think, I think, uh, there you are. Aaron is right there in the back. Um, and Amara's in the nursery. All right. Bless the Lord. <laughs> Just always, Lord, you are so good. Uh, days start at 6.30 a.m. when I walk the dog. These days, I'm out of the house by 7.30 because I have to be at the church for some reason. Um, it's, it varies, actually. Um, we are in this transition in our lives. We are moving from things that we were doing to sort of this like new thing. Uh, being at First Presbyterian Church of Hayward more so feels like the Lord saying, this is a new chapter. It's a new thing. Um, I will spare you the details of that, but it's a good thing. Um, and so... Um, our days, our weekends usually look like looking for houses because that's a thing we're doing right now. Uh, we went to an open house before we came here because, you know, it's the weekend and that's what you do. Um, you see other cute babies at open houses. It's great. Um, and then we're usually at home by the afternoon on the weekends, but today we're here and we are glad to be here. And I was thinking about why I love the Ark, and there's two reasons why I love the Ark. You didn't know this was going to be a shameless commercial. If you're new here, I'm just going to tell you why I love the Ark. Okay? No one asked me to do this, by the way. I've not been, you know, coerced in any way. Uh, so uh, for Erina uh, and Amara and myself, the Ark has been a source of, like, intensely generous community. I think Christian's testimony is spot on. Uh, the way that these folks have prayed for us and been generous to us in time, talents, and treasure is sort of mind-blowing. So just know that's where you are, and it, this is a good place. As my pastor said this morning, there is no perfect church. The ark is not perfect. This, however, is a good place. Uh, you know, but the other reason I love the ark is because at some point, God gave me a love for the local church. I just didn't know it was happening until I found myself very excited to work at a church. I was like, wow, I am more excited than I thought. Um, and I think it's because I am really attracted to the idea of being in a place and seeing God move in that community. Um, and if that is what you're after, also, you're in the right place. Uh, there are folks here who see where God has sent them and says, God, what are you doing there? I want to be a part of that. So, that is why I love being here. Um, this week at my church was uh, a thing called a Vacation Bible School, VBS. We call it Bible Adventure Camp. Um, and my role was to do the music. My arms are tired. Because the, it's all of this and this and this. And it was a lot of arms. Uh, I don't work out as much as I used to. A funny thing happened, though. Um, so in the morning, kids would come into a room like this and start with the kindergartners. They'd go all the way up to sixth grade. And the kindergartners, I remember the first day, they came and they looked at me and they were like, what are you? You are like two and a half times as tall as me. 
And I was like, hi! And they were like, ugh. <laughs> fair, very fair. You know, by Tuesday, I, I was getting some waves. By Wednesday, I was getting high fives and fist bumps. And I brought in a drum to play one of the songs with. And they started just hitting the drum. And then they looked at me as if to say, is this okay? And I said, you got to play louder. Like, you can't just let a drum sit there. You got to play louder. And then to see five-year-olds bang a djembe is like the most incredibly cute sight. Um, by Thursday, I was getting beach balls flung at my head. Um, and by Friday, I think I caught a hug. Right? Um, it was a fascinating little thing. And it brought me back to... Um, I think when I preached here last time, I said this too. I am fascinated by the dynamic of presence. What it means that we are, are drawn to things. What it means that we want to be close to things. Um, and this is because presence communicates value. Right? When you, when you choose to be present to something, you're saying, I, I like this thing. This thing has value to me. Um, and I think we are drawn to presence because it communicates value, and value is at the heart of what we long for, right? We want to know, are we significant? Are we loved? Do we matter? Right? Those are the, like, bread-and-butter questions that we walk around with every day. Um, today, I want to talk about kind of sort of, I'm going to throw out churchy words to start, and hopefully use less churchy words to talk about the churchy words, okay? Um, we're going to talk about Trinity and baptism and worship. What a thing. Um, and I really do hope that I do a good job of using non-churchy words to tell you what all this stuff was about. Um, but my image of VBS made me wonder something about presence. Um, I wonder if in some of our relationships with God, we are having sort of a first day with Michael kind of engagement with God. Wherein it's sort of like, oh, there's God. Eh. Oh, there's God. Ooh. <laughs> oh, there's God. I don't really care. Um, and my hope, actually, and my prayer is that we have a day five engagement with God where there's fist bumps and high fives and hugs and you feel welcome to use all the stuff that God has given you and maybe even throw a beach ball at God's head. I don't know what that means, <laughs> honestly. Um, but my goal is as we engage with baptism and the Trinity and with uh, worship that 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 would be sort of some questions that God opens up for us. Um, that God would actually allow us to engage with God's presence with just a little bit more joy, a little bit more freedom than you came in here with. Would that be okay? Yeah. That would be okay. Um, in order to do that, we are going to use something called an icon, and I hope it will be on the screen. If not, that is okay. Um, now is the appointed time, <laughs> not for the screen, for um, the slips of paper. Yep, those people know who they are. So, um, so the body of Christ is vast. It is, spans time and it spans space, right? There are believers who have lived for thousands of years. There are believers all around the world. Um, I want to introduce you a little bit to our Greek Orthodox believers, our Russian Orthodox believers. Um, and I want to do that through a thing called an icon. Um, so an icon is a pictorial interpretation of Scripture that teaches the faithful how to pray. And icons engage the imagination. Icons are about as old as the church. Um, they say that Luke, the Luke that, got, that wrote the Luke of the Bible, drew the first icon. Um, and the reason that's important is because most of the church, for most of kind of the last 2,000 years, uh, and even today, a lot of the church is illiterate. 
Um, and so icons were the way that folks read scripture, right? If you have a community of illiterate people and no one can read the Bible and you're in an oral culture where you memorize everything, then the text comes to us in creative ways. Part of that is storytelling, which engages the imagination. Another way is an icon, which engages the imagination. Now, you might be wondering, this icon is an image. Isn't sort of engaging with an image in this way idolatry? And that would be a good question. And our Orthodox brothers and sisters would tell you no. Um, and the way that they engage with this is that this is actually sort of, like I said, an aid to prayer and a sort of resource alongside Scripture, right? Um, actually, when you kind of create an icon, uh, they call iconographers writers. They don't call them people that draw an icon. You say that you write an icon. Because that process is meant actually to be one where we are reflecting on the story of God, on the word of God. Um, in the Orthodox space, there is a lot of veneration or honor that comes to icons because they're such um, kind of this time-traveling part of the history of the people of God. Um, there are a lot of ways in which actually looking at icons is one of those like church fights. Um, I've been thinking about church history a lot, and there are some church fights, okay? Um, we're going to talk about one of the church fights really briefly. Icons was a church fight. Some people thought, this is blasphemy. And then a bunch of people met, and they were like, no, it's not. Case closed. Of course, it took 200 years. But um, icons are one of those things, like I said, they draw our imagination. Um, I want to read you a quote just so you understand a little bit of how we're going to engage an icon. This is by someone named Frederica Matthews Green, um, who studies and engages with icons more than me. Icons are companions in prayer and won't make sense outside the context of a surrendered and seeking life. Icons have their fullest impact on those who are saturated in prayer and scripture and who participate in the full life of the church with all of her mysteries, hymns, and worship. So today, we are going to engage with one particular icon, the one in your hand. Um, I have given it to you because I want you to be able to look at it. I want you to be able to engage with it, both now and also when we leave. Um, this, as it notes on the top, is the icon of baptism. Um, there's a fancy Greek word for it. It's called the theophany. That just means appearance of God. Um, and as we go through this icon, I'm going to show you some things on the icon itself. Um, in fact, can I have one? Oh, thank you. I'm going to show you some things on the icon itself um, that have been written here, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of why it's been written that way. Um, this was written by a friend of mine, um, and there's sort of a, a sort of a tradition of folks in different generations who will write this icon. So you can look up the icon of the baptism online, and you will see it drawn, written, excuse me, in different ways by different folks. Um, this is the icon of the baptism of our Lord, the theophany, the appearance of God. And this scene, the baptism, is the first kind of explicit uh, place where we see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, break in to human existence with, like, full-on drama. It's like, there's been hints before. There's been sort of nudges, and there's been a little bit of, like, is that? The baptism is where it's like, this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, I am here. Um, I don't know if any of you um, sort of are of the dramatic type, but I just imagine someone coming through a curtain just being like, boom! It is me. This is the triune God's it is me moment. Um, and the followers of Jesus, for a long, long time, 
have believed that God has existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is another church fight, believe it or not. This is a big church fight. In fact, this is probably the biggest church fight. A long time ago, there were people that wanted to say several sort of, we call them heresies, heretical. Heresies about Jesus, like, ah, Jesus isn't really God. Mmm, sorry. Jesus isn't really man. He was just a spirit thing. Mmm, sorry. The Holy Spirit isn't really real. Mmm, sorry. The Holy Spirit isn't, like, co-equal with God, with God the Father and the Son. Mmm, sorry. That was about 400 years. We get to, like, we get basically from, you know, Jesus appearing to about 387 A.D., and at 387 A.D., we're at boom. Let's lock this thing in. And I'll put that in quotes because there were more fights after that. But just know, at that point, we have a triune God that the, the church universal says, this is God, right? Um, we are going to look at the scene of the baptism what I want to do is I just want to read it for you first. I want to read from Matthew. And as I read from Matthew, I just want you to look at your icon. This is Matthew three thirteen to 17. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Um, the Common English Bible is a newish translation uh, that has been put together by lots of really smart people with PhDs from about 12 different faith traditions in Christian faith traditions. It is not sort of meant to be creative. It's meant to be the Bible in common English. So, just want to let you know. It's a little different. Matthew 3. At the time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? Jesus answered, allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. When Jesus baptized, was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. So there's a few things happening in this story, and we can track them with our icon. So if you look at the top, there's like three concentric circles, and there's light coming from them. Um, the first thing that happens is this scene in this scene is access. The heavens open. The heavens are open. This hasn't happened very often. For the people of God, when the heavens open, something crazy is about to happen. There's several scenes where several really important people in our faith, for instance, Moses, have experienced heaven's opening. But there's only a few. It doesn't happen very often. And when it comes, something crazy is about to happen. In fact, these folks, these sort of people who have been experiencing this baptism of John, and by the way, John is the dude on the left, kind of touching Jesus's head, um, these are folks who have been waiting on God to speak something significant for about 400 years. Theologians call this sort of a prophetically silent period. Um, and here now, the silence is broken. The heavens are open. There is access to the Father. God is going to do a new thing. And then there is anointing. Um, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and you can see that from these open heavens comes the dove. Right below those three concentric circles, you can see a dove as it kind of is resting, um, is sort of descending. And I, I, I had a question as I looked at this. I was like, well, what, what do we know about the Spirit before this moment? Um, and so I just want to tell you some things that we know about the Spirit from Scripture before this moment. 
Um, in Matthew, what we know about the Spirit is that the Spirit comes to Mary, a virgin, and after the Spirit comes to Mary, a virgin, that virgin is pregnant. Huh. What a thing. That's crazy. I just, you know, I just, I, sometimes we have to pause and realize that things are crazy. That's crazy. The Spirit comes, and because the Spirit is there, a woman who would biologically not be able to get pregnant, period, end of story, is pregnant with the Savior of the world. Okay? Then I looked at the book of Luke. And Luke says the same thing, but Luke also has this thing happen where people sort of encounter Jesus either uh, in utero as Elizabeth, a cousin of Mary, encounters Jesus, or when Jesus is a baby, and all of a sudden, the Spirit falls on them, and they just begin to prophesy. Like, at the presence of a baby, you prophesy. I love babies. I've never prophesied because of the presence of one. I don't know about you. I would love to hear, not now, I would love to hear, if that has happened to you, that has never happened to me. So apparently this Holy Spirit that has come like a dove, this is a spirit that can bring life into things that should not have it and speak words of clarity about God that means something in both past, present, and future. And this thing rests on Jesus. There is your dove. So Jesus receives this spirit, and in this icon we see Jesus, and it is very important, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, that Jesus is actually not clothed. In some versions of this icon, Jesus is clothed. In this one, Jesus is not. I will talk about why later. But in our scene, two very important things happen for Jesus. Acknowledgement and approval. The acknowledgement, this is the son whom I dearly love. This is my beloved son. And here now, we see how the father and son are connected. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. With him, I find happiness. Another word is delight. I delight in him. I enjoy him. And so in this scene of baptism, we get these two things. We get allegiance, right? It's sort of a familial allegiance, actually, between father and son. They are connected as family in a bond that will not be broken. And then we get affection. Not only is this bond unbreakable, but it is full of joy all the time. There is not a moment in which the triune God is not in a constant state of joy. So much joy. And so here is our baptism moment. Now we're going to zoom in on Jesus a little bit. Um, the thing about icons is that icons are sort of written thinking about time happening all at once. Right? There isn't sort of a sense of you see this thing and it happened first and this thing happened next. It's sort of things happen all at once. And so we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to look at two kind of things happening in this icon with Jesus. So the first thing you see is that Jesus is sort of in the crevices of this river. Right? So he's like, you can see the banks of the river and you can see John reaching down to bless, to sort of put his hands on Jesus and Jesus is in this river. When God comes to earth as a man, God enters into creation and lives a human life alongside us. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. Jesus is God with us. This is what it means when we talk about the presence of God. 
right? Sometimes we talk about the presence of God as if it's sort of this like kind of ethereal, touchy-feely thing, which sometimes, yes, I just must say, like I, am, I can be skeptical, but sometimes I have encountered the Lord in quite a, a, a touchy-feely way. And I'm like, Lord, like it has to be more like intellectually stimulating than this. And God's like, shut up, I love you. Right? Like, it, th- that happens. That happens. It totally happens. But all of that is based on the fact that God has chosen to be God who is with us. Broken into our reality to be present. It is in Jesus' baptism that we see God demonstrating a commitment to be present in every part of our circumstances and present to all creation. And if Jesus is present to us, then Jesus knows how to live this life. He didn't just come because after this moment, some stuff happens. Jesus has a full life. And he does a lot of things. And Jesus shows us how to be human. You want to know how to do this thing? Follow Jesus. If Jesus knows how to live this life, we should engage with Jesus as if Jesus knows how to live this life. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like, it's not—Jesus isn't just sort of interacting with the world at large. Like, he knows how to live your life. We should probably pray like Jesus knows how to live our life. I am not good at this. Here's how I know. I ask shallow, close-ended questions of Jesus. What does this mean? Should I do this? Yes or no? Again, can be an appropriate question. Can be. But it's really the open-ended questions that mean more to us, right? How am I really feeling about this job? (laughs) Is there another job you want me to have? How do I be a good friend? How do I, Michael, be a good husband? How do I be a good dad? When will you reconcile my relationship with my mom? Right? Those are the, like, more important questions for us in a lot of ways. And they're the questions that don't have easy answers. But that's where we need Jesus to teach us how to be human and live this life. Ask those questions of Jesus, but be prepared for Jesus to ask them back of you. Right? I believe it was in the storm. Jesus is in a storm. Um, and, 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 the, and his homies, the disciples, are there with him. And, and it's really crazy on the river, on the lake, excuse me. And Jesus is sleeping. Right? And I believe the words are, why are you asleep? Do you not care if we die? Um. And then Jesus wakes up and calms the storm with his words. He calms weather patterns with his words. Again, strange. And then to top it off, he asks them a question. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? So, I just want to warn you, if you're going to start asking open-ended questions of Jesus about your actual life, Jesus will ask you open-ended questions about your faith and they will possibly challenge you. Just going to throw that out there. The other thing I will say about Jesus entering our existence is that Jesus knows the pain and the suffering that we endure. He entered into the fullness of humanity, not just the good stuff. He jumped in. And so I just want you to know that as you endure hardship, And as those questions seem harder and harder to discern answers to, and as they bring pain and confusion, 
that Jesus knows all of that. He knows the pain and confusion of having been betrayed by people whom he gave his whole life to. He knows what it's like to die alone. He knows what it's like to be a refugee in a foreign land, only made a refugee because an insecure ruler didn't want to let go of power. He knows that. I want you to look at your icon again. And notice that Jesus is sort of on the surface of the water. But with his right hand, he has this sort of sign. He's doing this thing with his hands. And this is a sign of blessing. And that seems curious to me. What is Jesus doing? I want to read from something again. This is a commentary on this icon. It says, while Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, it was really the Jordan and all of creation that was baptized in Christ. We see the beginning of a new creation in theophany. Things are being set right. Christ has come not only to cleanse and restore mankind, but to adopt us as heirs into the kingdom of God. And when we receive his glory, not only are we redeemed, but we draw all of creation with us into the final creation. This is why creation groans in eager expectation, awaiting the glorification of the children of God. This baptism is an invitation for us. It is an invitation for us, for me, for you, for all creation, for every system and structure and principality and power to be made right in the baptism of Christ. To be renewed, to be made new by being tucked in with Jesus, experiencing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection— to choose that as the source of our existence, our truth, our hope. Romans 6 says it like this. So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us died to sin. How can we still live in it? Or don't you know that all who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. If we were united together in a death like his, we will also be united together in a resurrection like his. Right, we experienced, we talked about that in this moment, Jesus was sort of showing us what allegiance to the Father and affection by the Father looks like. And those two things, for me, basically make up what worship is about. Worship is when we say, God, you, you are the primary, you are who I'm in primary allegiance to. It's you before anything else. You, my allegiance to you orders all the others. And we remember that God has already chosen to be faithful to us, right? And so we can only pay allegiance to God because God has been faithful to us first, right? Worship is also about affection, where we experience the affection of the Father who delights in us, who is so happy about us, the image bearers, the children of God. And that affection should probably stir up some affection on our part for God. Allegiance and affection. And when we choose to be baptized into Christ, those things come into play, right? So Romans 6 talks about us being baptized into Christ's death, into Jesus' death. How would we choose the death of Jesus? 
There's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot that I didn't really understand, truth be told, until maybe, I don't know, a year ago. People would talk about dying to sin a lot. And I'd be like, what do you mean? I don't get it. And then I stared at this for like four months. And I was like, oh, dying to sin is when you destroy those other allegiances and when you say no or you let sort of your affection for God and God's affection for you order all the other affections. I get it. Didn't make it any easier to do, but I got it. We have to take the other allegiances and we have to now examine our life. Right? Does something else choose how you spend your time? Spend your money? Make your money? Make your decisions? Employ your talents, your gifts, your intellect? Engage relationally? Make friends? Keep friends? Walk away from friendships? Be a son? Be a daughter? Is something else making that decision for you? Is something else kind of trying to steer you in a certain path? That is another allegiance. When we choose the death of Christ, what we are saying is no. I choose Jesus. And explicitly, I don't choose this thing. Choosing the death of Jesus also means that we have to examine our relationship with the other things that bring us affection. Whose affections have a strong effect on you? Why? Why? Do those affections sway you in a way that makes you forget God's affection for you? I am a very extroverted person. And in my life, what this has meant is that I love being around people. It also has meant that when the people enter, and I have noticed in myself that when I have not sort of engaged with Jesus in a full way, for some reason, for, for a particular season, being in those extroverted spaces does, does a thing that I think Jesus is supposed to do for me. Right? Being around people is supposed to actually make me more loyal to God. But sometimes it just makes me feel good. And I don't find myself actually, like, loving God more because I have all this wonderful extroverted energy. And I know because of the crash that comes when they all leave. See, the crash comes when, when they leave, and I feel like, like this, this sort of melodramatic, like, why, why am I even living, right? Like, it's really, it's, oh, it's so unhealthy, But, but, but it comes because I've forgotten that, that my allegiance isn't to these people and I am not primarily supposed to be assuaged by their affections for me or how they make me feel. Um, so when we choose the death of Jesus, we examine our allegiances and we examine our affections and we say no to the ones that don't put God first. And then we choose into the resurrection of Jesus. And now we say yes to the life that Jesus has offered us. The life in which we are sort of free to say, God, you are my first allegiance. God, you are my primary source of affection. And now we can ask God, like I said before, to teach us how to live. And this is a season where um, I have realized that I am more tired than usual. I mean, it may or may not have to do with the fact that I have a one-year-old. 
I'm just saying. Um, but it has been difficult to choose into a resurrection life. But that's why I've stared at this for the past four months. Because when I look at Jesus, I know that there's an invitation. Jesus is saying, yes, you need to die to some things. You need to cut some ties with some things. Also, I have a new life for you. I've got something else. I just want to say, you don't want to live half the Christian life. Right? You don't want to live half where you do all of the dying and then you never do the resurrecting. Right? Because then who are we? We're dead. And it doesn't make sense to go backward. And we'll talk about that in a second. (laughs) And now I want to go back for a second and say something really important to you. There's a reason why it's important that God is with us. And it's because we aren't just looking at this Jesus and thinking, ooh, what a great example. What a great moral teacher to follow. Ooh, I should, I should be like Jesus. You should be like Jesus. You know the way to be like Jesus? You got to hold on to Jesus. Because this invitation of baptism is actually an invitation to hold on to Jesus. Because the only way you get in the water and out of the water is with Jesus. As I said, as I have found it difficult to sort of envision resurrected life um, in these days where I am a little more tired than I want to be, I literally have sort sort of pictured myself holding on to Jesus. And as I die to things and I come out of that water, I'm like, Lord, I'm still with you. I'm barely hanging on, but I'm with you. What do you have for me? When we choose the baptism of Jesus, we are choosing to hold on to Jesus. And the way that God renews all things and makes all things right and good is that God comes near. He comes into our situation, and it's not this sort of like distant transformation. It's not like a remote control. There is no such life with God, wherein God sort of beams his love from you from space. God is here. The baptism is an invitation to hold on to the God who is near And then we can follow Jesus. We can be a part of Jesus' baptism. The baptism wherein the heavens are opened and we have unfettered access to the Father of all creation. The baptism wherein the spirit that brings seemingly unlikely life and clarifies reality falls onto you, onto us. The baptism wherein the children of God know where their affection should lie. The children of God know to whom we are primarily allegiant. The children of God know who is already committed to us. The baptism wherein God reveals that God is with us. The baptism wherein God makes all things new. As I looked at this icon, another thing struck me, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about. On the right, there's three figures. And if you notice, they've got wings. Those are angels. Um, And we know that angels minister to Jesus. um, But they minister to Jesus at a particular moment, actually right after this baptism. And this is the moment of the temptation. And as I was looking at the angels, and I was thinking about the temptation, um, I began to have this sense, and so that I don't ruin it, I'm going to read you this scene, and I'm going to read you what I wrote, because I don't want to mess it up. (laughs) This is Matthew 4. This is right after the baptism. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. 
after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, in other translations, if you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. I once heard um, a sermon from the pastor who married us, and he talked about the first temptation in this scene being the words, since or if you are God's son. Stop. The temptation is also a very Trinitarian event, but it is the event that proves to us that the work of our, en- of our enemy is to make us prove that we are children of God. The work of the enemy is to make you try and prove that you are children of God. You have nothing to prove. You can't prove it. You cannot do anything to sort of affect God's faithfulness. <laughs> Sorry. Part of what we see in the baptism is an, a, a commitment to all creation that has lasted from before the before. You can't change God's commitment to all creation, which means you cannot change God's commitment to you. And the question that kept ringing through my mind was, how is the enemy trying to make you spend your energy attempting to prove something that you cannot prove? Because it is already true. And in fact, we walk away from worship when our lives become a useless conversation with the enemy trying to prove to our enemy or anyone else or even ourselves that we are deserving of being children of God. My friends, you cannot chase the wind. (laughs) You are a child of God. When you choose into the baptism of Jesus, you say yes to being a child of God. And you may not do that perfectly. In fact, you won't. And that's why we get to choose the baptism every day. There's an old Negro spiritual. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me the baptized Jesus every morning because I know that I need that Jesus to show me once again that I am a child of God, that God has plans for me as a child, that God has affection for me as a child. I'm going to pray. As we pray, um, I want to invite you, um, if you're comfortable, to look at the icon, if it would help you to pray. You don't have to. But if it would help you, you can look at it.
God, in this moment, um, would you just show us the ways that you want to reveal your presence, the good news of your presence? Would you show us the ways that you want us to remember that we are children of God? Would you show us the ways that you want us to choose into your baptism?